chapter 13, 1 Samuel 13. Last week we left off in chapter 12, Samuel's final sermon, uh, where he challenges Israel to stick with Yahweh. He challenges them to continue in obedience to Yahweh. He challenges the whole of the group, and specifically Saul, and says, if you will continue in obedience to Yahweh, then things will go well with you. But if you do not, things will not go so well. You will be swept away. And it does not take Saul very long uh, to do his own thing. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're just going to read the first uh, few verses here out of 13 to get started, and then we're going to kind of jump back into the story at certain points. Uh, we're going to cover chapters 13, 14, and 15, and these are some incredible stories of valor, incredible stories of disobedience. And uh, so uh, hang in there with me this morning, but let's begin if you'll follow along as I read these first few verses, 1 Samuel 13, it says, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gebeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Let's pray. Father, we ask now for your gracious blessing on your word. What a, what a joy it has been to just sing these songs of praise to you. To be reminded this morning that no matter what we face, uh, no matter what's going on in our lives circumstantially, Lord, that you are still in control and you have dealt with the greatest need we would ever have in saving our soul through the cross of Christ, through the empty tomb. And I just pray now your blessing as we consider these stories, these truths from the pages of the Old Testament that we would take heed and we would listen and we would live in obedience. And I pray you'd help me now to communicate these things clearly and we ask your blessing in Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 13 opens by introducing us to Saul. It's kind of that introduction that you find, similar to in the book of Kings as the different kings are introduced, or Chronicles as those same kings are introduced. But the Hebrew manuscripts lack actually some important information that has left readers and even uh, scholars scratching their heads over the years. As we just read, the ESV reads this way, Saul lived for one year and then became king. So it sounds like Saul was like a baby, a baby king. Uh, he was kind of a baby uh, king, but uh, maybe more in a figurative sense. Uh, the numbers are missing from some of these Hebrew manuscripts. And so there's been guesses that have been made in the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle Paul references that Saul was 40 years old. And so a lot have plugged that number in here that he was 40 years old uh, when he began to reign. Uh, but really, uh, the, the reason I pointed out is because some of you are going to have little notes in your Bible that have a, have a suggestion here. I just wanted to point it out and say this. The number Numbers don't matter. The issue is that Saul is presently the king of Israel. And during this time, the Philistines, which would in time just simply become their arch enemies, uh, they are a thorn in the side of Israel. And so Saul leads an army uh, protecting the area of Michmash, and he has Jonathan, his son, that's a, that's a new character alert, uh, he has him guarding the area of Gibeah. Gibeah is where Saul and Jonathan are from. That's the present capital of Israel at this time because Saul is the newly anointed king. And so the Philistines have them, uh, in a sense, not quite besieged at this point, but they have garrisons, these military bases set up. And so they're sitting there in protection over these cities. And Jonathan gets tired of waiting around. And so Jonathan leads a military campaign. He has the lesser of the groups of soldiers uh, that are Israel's with him, and he leads this, uh, this attack against the garrison, and he defeats them. And, and word spreads quickly that Saul has defeated the Philistines in this particular battle. He is the king. He does get the credit. 
And all of this leads the Israelites to really rejoice. This is good news, but it does not settle well with who? With the Philistines. Uh, They don't like what they're hearing, and so in response, they flex their muscles. They bring 30,000 chariots of iron into Israel territory, 6,000 soldiers on horses, and then an innumerable amount of foot soldiers that says they cannot be counted. In verse 5, it reads this way, troops like the sands of the seashore in multitude. The Philistines are coming, and they want to rid the world of Israel once and for all. Well, Israel's response to this is less bold. Uh, In fact, it's not bold at all. What it says in the text is the men go and they hide in caves, in holes, in rocks, in tombs, in, uh, in cisterns, anything they can find to hide themselves in, that's where they go. Some of them head for the hills, they cross the fords at the Jordan River, and, and head east as far as they can get, as far away from what they know is coming. But there is a small group that gathers with King Saul at Gilgal. Uh, but they are, it says in the text, really quaking in their boots in verse 7. And so there at Gilgal, where Samuel told Saul to go and wait, you can go back to chapter 10 and verse 8 and read about that exchange. Saul waits, and he was told, you got to wait for seven days. And so Saul is there, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. And while he's waiting, the days are ticking, and more of his men that are there with him begin to run and leave and hide in holes and cisterns and all those things. And so the enemy is encroaching more and more. His men are leaving, and he feels like he has to do something. And slow Samuel is not showing up. And so on the seventh day, he feels he's waited long enough. And so he says, bring out the sacrifices. And Saul offers a burnt offering, which is not his job to do. His job was to wait. And as he is done offering this burnt offering, wrapping up this sacred ceremony, no doubt there's probably this prideful look of accomplishment on his face. Samuel shows up and says, what are you doing? What have you done? Saul thought he was doing something good. I don't know if you've ever done that. Like as a kid, I would maybe try to help my mom and clean something up, and uh, I used the wrong thing or something like that, and and she comes in, what have you done? (laughs) You ruined it. I I was trying to do it right, but you ruined it. Saul has ruined it. In the verses that follow, he explains himself. He concludes, and I love the verbiage in here. He says, I had to force myself, Samuel. I had to force myself to do this. And then he turns around very emphatically and says, it's your fault. You were supposed to be here, and you didn't show up. And to this, Samuel responds in verses 13 and 14. It'll help you if you you read these as I read them. It says, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom of Israel forever. But now... Your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded. All Saul had to do was wait. But waiting is hard, isn't it? I mean, especially when the enemy is getting closer by the day. Waiting is hard, especially when your friends, the people you thought you could count on, are abandoning you left and right. Waiting is hard. We've all been there in those situations where the waiting is hard. Waiting on the Lord is a test of our faith, our our trust in the Lord that he will come through. And Saul, as we've really already discovered from his introduction, he does not have a great deal of faith in the Lord personally. And because of this, his legacy is taken away from him. Yahweh doesn't reject Saul himself at this point, but he does reject Saul's lineage continuing in the kingship and the monarchy of Israel. So after speaking his peace to Saul, Samuel says, I'm out. 
and he walks away, and he heads back to Ramah. And here is the real tragedy, because Saul still has no answers. He still has no direction from Yahweh. The the word of the Lord that is Samuel just left. He is now alone. He's alone. He's forfeited the word, and he's suffering the consequences. And so at this point between Saul and his son Jonathan, there are 600 men besieged by tens of thousands who are breaking up into three groups and beginning to set up garrisons in surrounding in hopes of choking out Saul, Jonathan, and Israel. And in the closing verses of chapter 13, it peels back another layer. I love the history that's kind of thrown in here because it tells us a little bit about the Philistines' battle, battle strategy. What the Philistines would do is they would go into a place and they would take all of the blacksmiths away. And so the people in that particular area, they could not make their own weapons anymore. And then they would have them, when they needed to get their plows sharpened and their farming tools, they would have to come into the Philistine territory, pay money to get those things done. And so it just reveals another layer of hopelessness for Israel at this point, the impossibility. They don't even have very many weapons. A lot of these guys are using farm tools that probably aren't very sharp, and there's just not a lot of hope as the chapter closes. But there is a chapter 14, and if we've learned anything, Yahweh never gives up on his people. Yahweh never walks out on his people. And and, and even though at this point he has in some sense abandoned Saul, we were introduced to another character that comes to the limelight in this chapter, Jonathan, Saul's son. And so as we move into chapter 14 and verse 1, Jonathan seems again to be getting tired of just sitting around. I mean, he's got just a a few hundred soldiers, and they're surrounded by tens upon thousands of soldiers. Uh, But he knows, hey, I'm either going to die here, or or I'm going to die out there fighting. And so he talks to his armor bearer, who is basically his right-hand man in battle. They were typically just best friends uh, that would fight it out. Uh, But the only problem is, is between Jonathan and the next Philistine garrison is a steep cliff that goes down, a wadi in the middle, and another cliff that would go up. And, and I love in the text they actually give the names for these cliffs. One is Boses, the one that goes down, that means slippery. And the one that goes up is Sarah, and that means thorny. Uh, so he's got his work cut out for him just to get to the garrison of Philistines. He's got to go down the slippery cliff and go up the thorny cliff. And that's exactly what he decides to do. But Jonathan, tired of sitting around, and I want you to notice the contrast that's set up here. Notice verse 2 of chapter 14. I think this is important for you to see. It says, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Atub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh. And he was wearing the ephod, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. And so Saul is just sitting around with Ahijah. Jonathan is the one who's, who's moving into action. Remember, that's the exact same thing that happened in the previous chapter. Jonathan is the one who moved against the Philistines. Jonathan is the one who, who got this whole thing started while Saul just sat there. Saul is becoming the absentee king the poor leader that that was already indicated in his beginnings. We were told that he wasn't a good shepherd, that he wasn't good at these things, yet we're beginning to see it come to life as these battles are taking place. But there's another important highlight in these verses. Why does the author mention all these names? Why does he bring up Ahijah, the priest? Notice the family connection there. Ahijah, the priest, he's the grandson of Phinehas, who was, you remember, the son of Eli, the high priest at Shiloh. All this goes back to to, the second chapter where they lose the Ark of the Covenant in the battle. Remember, Eli's sons, Phinehas and Hophni, were so wicked, what happened? What was the word of the Lord that came? Your family is rejected as priests. Here sits Saul, his family rejected as the king, with the rejected priests just waiting, just doing nothing. The author's trying to get us to see 
Failure to obey Yahweh puts you in situations like this. But let's get back to Jonathan and this impossible mission. And let's go ahead and read about his action. We're going to start in chapter 14 and verse 6. I just want to read about 11 verses here with you. 14 and verse 6. It says, Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, his armor bearer, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Who says that in a few more chapters? Who are these uncircumcised Philistines? A guy named David as he's about to face down Goliath. As I studied this, I began to realize that's why these two guys were two peas in a pod. They have very similar mindsets. And it may be, I love his word. John says, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Yahweh can do whatever he wants, and he may do it. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Man, what a, what a bond right there, right? What a bond, friendship. Some of, you, some of you military guys, you get that too. I'm with you in this to the end. Then Jonathan said, behold, we'll cross over to the men and we'll show ourselves to them. So he's like, I'm, I'm not gonna hide this. This isn't sneaky. We're just gonna cross over. We're gonna show it. And if they say, wait until you come up, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, hey, come up to us, then we'll go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. And so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. This is after climbing down a cliff and up a cliff. And the Philistines says, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they're hiding, hiding themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. I like that. So the ones Jonathan's missing on the way through camp, the armor bearer's finishing off. And they killed about 20 men within, as it were, a half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp and in the field and among all the people and the garrison. Even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And notice this next verse. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Long story short, The camp, the Israel camp, these 600 soldiers, they began to notice what's happening. There's a frenzy going on in this particular garrison. And so they quickly uh, do a roll call, and that's not very hard when you only have a few hundred soldiers. And they recognize Jonathan's gone. His armor bearer is gone. And so eventually what happens is these guys decide, let's join in the battle. Let's get involved in this. And then the guys start popping out of the holes and tombs and cisterns. And they say, we're going to join in the battle too. And so they join in the battle and they rout the Philistines all the way back across the original border of Beth-Avon. With God, nothing is impossible. With God, nothing is impossible. Luke 1, spoken to Mary. With God, nothing is impossible. Verses 24 through 46, chapter 14, we, we enter into the story. There's, a, there's kind of another scene that's happening that we're invited uh, to look at. While, while Jonathan is doing battle, Saul is being a, a terrible king and leader. And so here's what he does. He, he commands his armies, I don't want you to eat anything until we are avenged of these Philistines. And actually, it's until I'm avenged of these Philistines. He said, I want you to eat anything as if somehow this is going to please Yahweh or maybe twist Yahweh's arm to help them, when in fact all it does is exhaust the soldiers. Saul even goes as far to say the person who does eat, they're cursed. They're done. They'll be put to death. Well, Jonathan hadn't heard his dad's stupid rule. And so he's in the middle of the battle, and he sees some honey, and he eats the honey. And some of the other guys come around, and they say, hey, your dad said you can't eat of these things. And Jonathan wisely says, that's stupid. Look, man, I was, I was tired, and as soon as I ate this honey, did you see how, how bright my eyes got again? I mean, I had the energy. We need to eat if we're going to fight. And as the chapter progresses, we don't have time to work through all of those details. As the battle is over, and they're standing there, and here's Saul and Jonathan and the other people, Saul is ready to kill his own son because of his disobedience to this really, really dumb command. 
And the people rise up and say, how in the world can you justify killing the hero of the day? This is the guy who won the battle, and he's overcome by that people-pleasing thing, and he spares Jonathan's life. We're just touching on these stories. In some of these instances, we're just scratching the surface so we can see Saul's failure as a king, his failure as a leader, his failure as a father, a human, and most importantly, his failure as a servant of Yahweh. He's not right. There's something wrong with Saul. But despite his failures, his kingdom grows. So chapter 14 ends. It talks about the growth and the development of the kingdom. His family grows. His army grows. All of these things are happening. And that leads us into part two of Saul's failure. Chapter 15 marks really a new section of the book. It opens us up into this next section that will introduce David as the king. And so we have to kind of take the first step into that to see Saul's second failure, another disastrous day. And so uh, look with me, chapter 15. I'm just going to get us started in the first few verses here. So Samuel comes to Saul. So Samuel, he's come back. Battle with the Philistines is over. Kingdom has grown. Samuel says to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, to understand these instructions, we have to go back into the history of Israel. We have to go back to the book of Exodus. Moses is leading Israel out of the wilderness, and they're making their way now into to the promised land, to the border. And they ask the Amalekites at that point, can we pass through your land? We're not going to bother your stuff. We're not going to eat your food. We're not going to take anything from you. We just want to get through. And instead of offering a, a polite, no, we don't like that idea, the Amalekites bring their army to do battle with Israel. This is a pretty famous battle historically because Joshua is leading it out in the, the field and Moses is up on the side of a hill and they're having to keep his arms raised. You may remember that where Aaron is on one side, hers on the other side, and they're, they're keeping his arms up. As long as his arms are raised, they're winning the battle. Well, Yahweh promises at that point, I'm not going to mess around with the Amalekites anymore. I'm going to destroy them. And here we are 300 years later and the word of the Lord comes to Saul, it's time to destroy the Amalekites. It's time to be done with him. And uh, Saul's instructions are destroy it all. I mean, it's, it's kind of Jericho-ish, right? Remember, I just want you to bring destruction to everything that's there. He says, don't spare, kill man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, donkey. I mean, that's, we read that and that's nasty stuff. I mean, we don't like to think about this. And many stumble here. How, how could a God of compassion how could the God that we know give such instructions? And, and the truth is, to be just as honest as I can be, he doesn't have to answer us. He doesn't owe us an explanation. Because what we know from Scripture is whatever he commands and whatever he does is right. And, and we may not understand it, but he doesn't owe us an explanation. But we do understand from Scripture that, yes, he is a God of compassion. We see that very clearly, but we also see that he is a God of justice. The cross represents both of those things for us, right? We see there is compassion in this God in that he offers himself, but we also see there is justice in this God that he offers himself. Somebody has to pay the price, and Jesus willingly accepts that for us. The Malachites were wicked, wicked people, and justice needed to be meted out. And guess what? They've had 300 years to repent. They've had 300 years of mercy shown to them, but they have not changed other than growing worse and worse in their evil. And so in verses 4 through 7, we would read of the battle. We won't take the time to look at that, but notice verse 8. And as I read this, consider what's off here. 
Consider what, what Samuel's instructions were and consider what's off. Here's what it says, Samuel speaking. He says, and he, or Saul took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And he devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best sheep and all the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. What happened? He didn't obey. He left Agag the king alive. We don't know why. Maybe he thought, he's a king, I'm a king. I wouldn't want to be treated like that. We don't know why, but they also left the best of the livestock alive. And here's what they said. We'll offer it as burnt offerings to the Lord. We'll offer it as sacrifices. Well, what happens next is vitally important and oftentimes very confusing. And so I want to read through this explanation that happens starting in verse 10. We're going to read a rather lengthy portion here, beginning in verse 10, and then I'm going to offer some explanation on the other side of this. And so here's what happens. The word of the Lord comes to Samuel. And here's the word of the Lord. I regret that I have made Saul king. He's turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry. And he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Saul comes out and says, I did it. Bless the Lord. Verse 14. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And I hear sheep, Saul. I hear ox, Saul. And Saul said, well, they've been brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. Look at that. Your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. And then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. And why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil and the sheep and the oxen and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said this, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry, and because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Game over, Saul. There's a few things we need to cover as we think about everything that happens in those verses. And the first one is right out of the gate. Yahweh's regret. How do we deal with that? How do we understand that Yahweh says, man, I, I regret that I ever made Saul king. How does a sovereign God regret? Did he, did he get it wrong? Did, did Saul somehow move out of the plan and, and Yahweh's scrambling to try to figure out, uh, what do I do next? How do I fix this? Well, absolutely not. That is not the character of our God. We understand that from plenty other places in Scripture. 
Saul's rebellion is not a surprise to Yahweh at this point. Not at all. It was absolutely a part of his plan A. Guess what else is part of his plan A? David, who's coming down the pike. God doesn't have plan B's and C's and D's. We have those. He's got a plan A, and it is accomplished, and it is always accomplished. So why does the author use the word regret? I mean, that carries for us this, this idea of mistake, doesn't it? We don't, we don't say, I regret doing that unless we're recognizing I messed something up. I, I did something wrong. Well, the simple explanation that is often given is this, that the author uses human language so that we can understand a little bit about what's going on in the mind and in the heart of God at this point. Because we can't understand an infinite God who's infinite in wisdom, who has a plan A that never deviates to a plan B, C, or D. It's hard for us to comprehend that. And so the author uses this language, and this isn't the only place that it's used, of, of, of regret and uses that word so that we understand a little bit about what's going on in the mind of God. What happens oftentimes, though, when that explanation is given, uh, it, it almost makes us think of Yahweh then as robotic. He's robotic, so we can't really understand him, so we have to put these human terms so that we can get a little better feel. And, and what happens when we come at it from that angle is we miss the fact that in this situation, Yahweh is absolutely grieved. He is absolutely brokenhearted. That's what's meant to be conveyed. That's what we're to take away from this verse. He is brokenhearted for Saul. He's brokenhearted for Israel and everything that's taken place up to this point. The second thing I want you to see is Samuel's pleading all night in frustration. It says he's angry. So the word of the Lord comes to him and says, I'm done with Saul. And Samuel's like, Samuel's like us. What? I did so much work on that guy. I had so many conversations. What? You know, he's, he's mad. He's angry. And we could ask the question, well, who's he angry at? And I think he's probably angry at Yahweh. I think he's probably angry at Saul. I think he's angry at himself. I think he's just angry in general. And he's angry all night until he brings it back in and recognizes again Okay, God is in control of this. And we've all been there. We've all been in those moments where situations happen and we are just angry. We don't know who to be angry at. Tuesday, our family remembered the 25th anniversary of my cousin getting killed. Uh, he was driving his car. He was hit by a train. Um, 17 years old. I was 16 and you better believe that many in my family spent some nights angry. Angry at the Lord, angry at themselves, angry at my cousin, what were you thinking? You know, all around just trying to come to grips with what is happening in this circumstance. Just like this in chapter 13 and 14, Saul, in this situation, he has good reasons for what he's doing, doesn't he? <laughs> he has it worked out in his mind. It, it, he, he had good reasons for offering the sacrifice and not waiting on Samuel in chapter 13. He, he had in his mind good reasons in chapter 14 for making this weird command that you shouldn't eat any food today. And here, as we move into this chapter, we think he had good reasons for sparing Agag and the best of the livestock. But the problem is, his good reasons were still disobedience. Doesn't matter how good the reasons were, they were disobedience from the direct and clear command that Yahweh gave. And in each of these cases, Saul thought he knew better than Yahweh. I mean, he had reasoned in his mind that that inner lawyer began to work and he began to think that, oh, yes, this is what I should do. My way of doing things is the best way of doing things. And I think he somehow thought in his brain that, that somehow Yahweh would come to him and say, Saul, I, di I didn't think of that. You're so smart. Thank you for disobeying me and doing it your better way. And I think he really thought that that would be the outcome. And the reason I, I really think he thought that would be the outcome is because that's the way we think. 
we reason and we justify our decisions and sinfulness. And we think that, oh, yeah, God, you just, you don't have all the facts. You don't understand the details of my circumstances. And we reason ourselves into disobedience. And then the last thing I want to just reiterate is, is those verses 22 through 23. Those verses burn, don't they? They burned a hole through Saul that day, and I can still feel the heat coming off the pages when I read them. To obey is better than sacrifice. In the end, Saul, and we'll just briefly cover this, he repents. I'm going to put that in air quotes for you. He repents. But his repentance, it doesn't seem very genuine. He pleads with, with Samuel. He says, before you leave, Samuel, come bow with me before the people so they'll see that, that you still accept me. And, and Samuel, he's turning to leave. And, and Saul reaches out and grabs Samuel's robe and rips it. And Samuel, being as cool as he is, he turns and says, just like you ripped my robe, the kingdom is ripped from you. I just wish I was that quick on those witty things. I'm not. Few key statements in that closing argument. You've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king. And then here's that verse where Samuel says to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who was next to Judah, or who was next to Benjamin, Judah. He's given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Man, those are painful words for a, a narcissist like Saul. Somebody better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he's not a man that he should have regret. I think that's just kind of a closing statement to think about that word that we looked at earlier. But the story keeps going. The old man Saul, he's old. He is old at this point. He picks up a sword and he hacks Agag, the king of the Amalekites, to pieces. And here's what he says as he does it. As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. Signifying again the, the cruelty, the um, just all around terribleness of this King Agag. Samuel goes to Ramah, Saul goes back to Gibeah, and they never see each other again. Never again. In chapter 13, Saul's future children were stripped of the kingdom. And here in chapter 15, Saul himself is stripped of his crown, rejected by Yahweh. The word of the Lord is the crown will go to another, someone who's better than Saul, another who is a man after God's own heart. Who will that be? To give you just a few implications as we close, just to dive back and think through these things. The first thing that I see as I think through these stories is this, that we are challenged over and over to trust the sovereign plan of Yahweh. Let me give you just three instances of that as we think about it. One is the situation we face in Saul's struggle to wait. We face similar situations to trust Yahweh's word, to trust his timing, that he will come through for us in those moments where we feel like, man, I need to act, and I need to act now. That's what Saul felt. The enemy was pressing. His friends were leaving. And he felt like, I have no other choice but to offer this sacrifice. But just like Saul in those situations, our action leads to disobedience. Our action in many of those moments is disobedience. Instead of trusting the Lord that he has me in this situation and he will come through for me in this situation, we try to respond in action. Instead of waiting in the Lord while we're in traffic and recognizing, hey, God's still sovereign. He knows, he knows about the idiot in front of me. He knows about the idiot behind me. Instead of waiting and trusting in that moment, what do we do? We snap. And we tell the person in front of us they're an idiot. And we tell the person behind us they're an idiot. We respond sinfully in anger and disobedience. And we do that in all sorts of situations in our lives instead of just trusting and waiting that God has us right where he wants us. Another struggle we see in the text is this. Why can't Jonathan be king? This dude is awesome. I love this guy. 
I love his trust in Yahweh. I love his, his willingness to charge headlong into the fight. We love him for the same reasons we love David. Because there's this just seemingly absolute trust in, in Yahweh and a recognition that he is the king. What's even cooler about Jonathan that will, will come to fruition in his life as the story continues is he never presupposes that this crown belongs to him. Never. He recognizes time and time again the true king of Israel is Yahweh. And he can give this stupid little human crown to whoever he wants to give it to. And he never presupposes on that. But for us, for me at least, as I look at this, I, I look at this situation, I say, this is not fair. Jonathan shouldn't lose the king, kingship and monarchy because his dumb dad. But he does, doesn't he? Because of Saul's decisions, he's stripped of what we would consider rightfully his. And we would conclude that is not fair. It's not fair. But we're never promised fairness, are we? Does the Bible ever say, does the Lord ever promise, I'll do everything that's fair in your life? Well, one, that's a pretty subjective thought, isn't it? I mean, we, we what I think is fair, you probably don't think it's fair. I deserve 60% of this pie. You deserve 40% of this pie. That's, that's fair to me. But the Bible never promises us fairness. What does it promise us? Rightness. It promises that whatever the Lord does is right. Not always fair. If, if we wanted fairness, if we wanted to truly demand fairness from Yahweh, every one of us in this room would be in hell right now. That's what's fair. There's nothing about the crucifixion of Jesus that's fair. He's absolutely innocent. And he's dying for the absolutely guilty. Nothing about that is fair. But according to God, it's right. And I'm okay with that one. Because I need a Savior. When you look around, where is life unfair? What situations do you see? I've seen wives and kids suffer because of the boneheaded decisions the leader of the home was supposed to make. And they made terrible decisions, and the, the, the wife suffers, the kids suffer as a result. And that's not fair, is it? No. But I do have to look through the lens of Scripture and the sovereignty of God and say, God has them where they are for a purpose. And it's right. It's right. I'll do what I can to step in and encourage. So wherever you're looking around right now and saying, hey, that's just not fair. I deserve better. Let it be well with your soul. Let it be well that he is in absolute control. Trust a sovereign God. One more relatable instance is the one that's previously mentioned. Just want to throw it back out there. Samuel's frustration with the rejection of Saul. Those, those situations where we find ourselves, we don't know who to be mad at, but we're mad because this is not what I want right now. One of the first things that came to my mind was the accident with Liz. That makes me mad. And I can be mad at all sorts of people, couldn't I? Uh, I could be mad at God. Why would you do this? But it comes back down to this. Can I trust Yahweh or not? Is he doing what's right, or is he doing what's wrong? Samuel had to come to that realization and come to the point where he says, okay, I'll, I'll continue to live in obedience to you. Hmm. In all these situations and the others we face, we have to trust the sovereign plan of God. Second, implication. We need to understand that obedience is vital. Guys, we do absolutely what Saul does. We justify in our own minds that somehow God will be pleased with my disobedience. We consider that, hey, I'll, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's okay to move in with my boyfriend, my girlfriend, uh, because it's for financial purposes. Was it disobedience or is it not? And we justify these things in our minds. For some of us, we convince ourselves that when God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, that what he means is I'm the ambassador of his vengeance. 
And it's okay for me to be angry, and it's okay for me to be bitter in this circumstance because I'm the tool that he's using in this person's life, and we justify our disobedience in those areas. Like Saul. And here's the thing, truly for the follower of Jesus, most of the sin we commit, most of the sin we commit is because we have somehow, like Saul, justified our disobedience. We know it's wrong. We've heard, we've looked at the scriptures. There's a, there's a spirit inside of us that is encouraging us in another direction and we say, no, nah, I think I'm gonna do it this way. And we just disobey. It shows itself in other ways as well. Listen to this quote by one commentator. He said, Saul did not listen to Yahweh's voice. He did not obey Yahweh's clear command. And he says this, one does not call that an alternate, alternate religious understanding. Or they don't call it an expression of theological pluralism. In other words, well, he can believe that and I'll believe this. You don't call it a quest for finding one's identity either. That's what happens in our present day, isn't it? Those are the terms that are used to define these kinds of things. What do we call what Saul did here? It's rebellion. It's arrogance. The word of Yahweh was clear. It's idolatry. So often, the word of God is twisted. It's twisted for political purposes. It's twisted for personal purposes. You think of the movements that are present in our present day, just societally, transgenderism, and some of these issues that are going on. That is a twisting of the word of God that is abundantly clear on those issues. Those who would step in to theological circles and say, hey, there's more than one way to heaven. Even though the Bible says there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we can be saved, I think there's another way. What are we doing? We're twisting we're twisting the word of God. I, I wholeheartedly believe, and I'll be in this group, when we get to heaven, a lot of sentences will start with this. But I thought, right? I'm going to have plenty of those. But, but, but I thought it was like this. And I'll be corrected. One more point about obedience. We also tend to think that we can somehow spiritually compensate for our disobedience. We may recognize our disobedience, but conclude in our minds, if I do enough good things, then it might just offset the bad things that I'm doing. So I'll read my Bible, I'll, I'll get to church this week, I'll pray, I'll adopt a resident from Republic Nursing and Rehab, I'll do these things and somehow Yahweh won't be as upset. I mean, it's like, Dad, I wrecked the car, but after I wrecked the car, I cleaned the garage, I mopped the floor, uh, I did all these things. What are we trying to do? We're trying to soften the blow of wrecking the car. Saul tries to do that with Yahweh more than once. We tend to do that. We're all really good legalists in our minds. He expects that these sacrifices will somehow offset. And, and I love this quote by Ralph Davis. He says, all the smoke and fat on Gilgal's altar would never replace the pleasure God could have had from the living sacrifice of Saul's obedience. And that is absolutely what Samuel says to him. To obey is better than sacrifice. When we buy into this practice of offering sacrifices to Yahweh to compensate for our, our disobedience, you know what we're doing? We're spitting at the cross. We're minimalizing what Jesus did. We're, we're thinking in that moment that if I just do some good things, then God will be pleased with that. Listen, you can do all the good things you want. He'll never be pleased with that. That's the whole reason Jesus came. If you could do enough good things to please God, Jesus would have never had to come. But if we put all of our good things together in this room, it's not going to help one of us if we consolidate it. And I'm a pretty good guy. Not really. <laughs> not really. Some of you know much better than that. 
And so when we, when we act as if, oh yeah, well, I'll just, I'll do this good thing here and this good thing there, we're dismissing the truth of the gospel of Christ. And friends, that's dangerous ground to be on. And we have to be very careful as we think through that. Where are you justifying your disobedience? One final point, very short. The king's coming. The king's coming. In each of these chapters where rejection is pronounced, the rejection always comes with a word of hope. You have no lineage. God's found a man after his own heart. Saul, I'm taking the kingdom away from you, and I'm giving it to somebody who's better than you. Each of the points of rejection comes with a promise of hope and restoration. Something better, someone better. Someone who can fix this mess. And I don't have time to get into that today, but I want to invite you back for our four weeks of Advent. December 1st, 8th, 15th, 22nd. We're going to be talking through the one who is better. Now, you're going to be tempted because you're going to come back on the first and, and David Moore is going to be talking to us about David being anointed. And we're going to be tempted to think, oh, there's the someone better. But he's not, is he? He's a sinner just like the rest of us. But the promises that are given to David point us into the future. And I want to invite you back for those Advent services as we celebrate the coming King, as we recognize the hope, the peace, the love, and the joy that he brings into this world and into our lives. All of this this year has been coming to this point. We're in the end game now, to quote my Avengers fans out there. We're in the end game now as we bring this thing to a close. Would you bow with me this morning?